Good morning, church. It's good to be here with you. Um, it's so great to see the students up front with your 180 weekend shirts on. And, and really, this is what we're talking about here today, is this idea of being ransomed. So it's kind of a carryover uh, into our Sunday ministry, but we're looking at it from a different angle, a different viewpoint this morning. Um, as you know, we've been going through a foundational series over the past uh, several weeks now um, with a variety of people uh, preaching, uh, and Pastor Stephen started with Sola Scriptura last week. Um, so I don't know if Pastor Stephen and Mike uh, remember this, but about, uh, I would say, a year ago now, um, we had had a meeting up at, at Mike Fulbright's house, and we began to discuss... Uh, kind of looking back at our Honduras trip <clears throat> and some of the challenges that we had faced getting through customs there and, and with medicine and, and, you know, what would the next trip we went on look like um, and what would the content look like? What, what would we need to target as we saw the, the previous time um, that we had just went on? And one thing we come to realize um, in, in our discussion was with the the population that we were serving, the different um, groups of people there in Honduras and the villages, um, was there needed to be a, a solid foundation of the gospel laid out before them. So what we would do as we went to the medical tent there, people would come in, and the first thing that they would have uh, you know, done with them was storying through uh, the biblical message of the gospel. And as we done that, then they would go on to the medical clinic. <clears throat> and with that being the case, uh, if the medical clinic couldn't be done, where, where would we go from there? Uh, if, if the Hondurans weren't going to allow us to, to do that. And it became uh, you know, quite important to us that we realized that we need to be able to really target that population there with sound scriptural teaching from the t standpoint of things that they were dealing with in everyday life and their belief system. So they, in, in you know, their villages, what they generally worship are going to be things like, um, you know, ancestral worship, uh, mysticism, but primarily Catholicism. And, and this idea was, um, you, you know, being peddled to them in the villages by the local priests there. Um, so what we decided to do was, you know, what if we looked at the five solas? What if we began to take those things and to implement them when we went down to teach these people about the truths of Scripture, which is how the Reformation came out of the Catholic Church, as Stephen began to t talk and teach last week. And so what came of this, though, as we began to talk about this series, was <clears throat> do our own people know these truths? Um, you know, how does it apply to us? It does no good for me to tell you about people who are thousands of miles away if you don't understand why it is that you sit in a Baptist church today. Um, how it is that you come to believe and profess the confessions of the Baptist faith um, and of that of the Protestant faith, ultimately. <clears throat> so this week, uh, we are continuing in that. Um, because what I'm trying to help you do is to develop a, a biblical worldview, a biblical understanding of how we should see through the lens of Scripture and not through the lens of our culture uh, or through the lens of anything else that has been taught to us. Now, Stephen, at 180 this past week, <clears throat> he's used this before, but I think it's always a good analogy of wearing a pair of glasses. I don't have a pair of glasses, so I can't take them off like he does. Um, <clears throat> but imagine if I was, a pair of glasses helps you see something in a certain light, in a certain way. And, and many of it helps you to read better, or it helps you to shield yourself from the sun, or whatever it may be. But it, <clears throat> it orients you to something in order to help you to focus on it and to have clarity on it. So what the world loves to do is to give you a pair of glasses and say, put these on because we want you to wear them. We want you to see as we see and understand as we understand and believe as we believe. That is the worldview of the world. The biblical worldview is putting on the glasses of what is this? The Bible tell us and teach us about Christ and about God and how we're to be saved as people. And it's important because um, as Christians, we should have a worldview. So 
<clears throat> this is why the sermon series that we currently own is so important, right? And it leads us into the main idea of the sermon today, which is that the defense of our Christian worldview, okay? So your defense of your Christian worldview hinges on the truth that nothing that we do merits any favor before God, and it necessitates the need for a Redeemer found in the work, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and Him alone. These were the truths that stoked the embers of the Protestant Reformation and leads us through the solas that Stephen began to preach on last week. Uh, and again, so um, <clears throat> this began by giving us the foundation that the Reformation was built upon in sola scriptura. We wanted to start with this important soul as it was the building block for the remainder of our foundational series because what is it if I preach something out of this and you don't understand the foundational truth that this right here is sufficient for our needs? That we need nothing else. I don't need another pastor or another prophet, uh, some prosperity gospel preacher, a, a book to tell me how to believe about scripture. Now, yes, we will use extra biblical material in order to... Um, help us to guide us along but this right here is sufficient enough it gives us what we need for everyday life <clears throat> so with that being the case we wanted to start with that that understanding that scripture alone is foundational to everything else that we will put our our belief and our core in so the reformers especially believe this to be true and we do here at battleground as well this is the reason we always aspire to, to preach exegetically. So I'm going to lead you through Ephesians 2 today. Um, and I'm going to preach that text. And I would like for you to listen to, you know, what it has to say to us. But when Luther and Tyndall, which uh, Stephen spoke of last week, got a hold of the word, it created a movement that continues until this day. We come each Sunday to preach and proclaim from these scriptures. And these scriptures alone so that we may be edified and equipped each week from week to week. Do you understand? That is, that is the point of why we do what we do. It is to edify and equip you to go out through the week so that you can live as Christians and have that lens and that worldview of Christian doctrine that you can live by. So trust me, this was a daunting task when myself and Stephen started talking about it because if you've ever studied the Protestant Reformation and the solas, you can spend weeks at a time on each one of these. And um, I pretty much have 10 minutes apiece on each one. So I'm going to try to push through that. But I wanted you to know this is kind of, um, it's like being in a, uh, you know, a helicopter or airplane and looking down from you know, 38,000 feet up and, and trying to take a macro view of these, these ideas and these concepts. But it's enough, as Stephen said last week, to, to kind of give you that itch to, to want to scratch. And I also have some books up here, and he's already got some if you want to continue to develop that. But the greatest place to come, as I've already said, is this word right here. Um, <clears throat> so I, I do want to say this as we go into the sermon. I hope you understand that this is not an attack on a person or a particular system, although the Reformation was protesting Catholicism at the time. Uh, this series has been formed as an attack on an ongoing worldview that teaches against this, the truths of Scripture, meaning anything outside of Christ himself, anything outside of faith itself, anything outside of grace alone, those things. So it is important that you understand that, you know, going said. So with that being said, if you'll please stand, I'm going to read the word of God to you. Um, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 10. And it says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. <clears throat> By grace you have been saved and raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, 
so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is a gift of God. Not as a result of works, so that no man can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You may sit down. Thank you. <clears> throat's a little bit scratchy this morning, so just bear with me. Yeah. You know, I asked Micah, I like liturgy, right? So I like hearing the word proclaimed uh, even before, during worship. We already do it in song, but... I think we do a good job in, in between our songs uh, each week of, you know, reading scripture. Um, but the, the liturgical is this reader response in the sense of, you know, not only this person, this pastor reading to you, but you in turn reading as well. And it just gives you a, a you know, a desire for the word to hear it for yourself, to read it. Um, so that, that's the reason we did that. Micah, thank you for doing that for me. Um, but it sets up the backdrop to understand chapter two, um, and the who, why, and how of God of how God works out our salvation. Um, so Ephesians one, I hope you understood that it kind of sets that backdrop, and it begins to give us the mechanics of that into Ephesians chapter two. So chapter one, uh, verses one through three. I'm going to read these again. I just like reading them out loud to you, but I'm going to read them again to you. It says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So one through three kind of sets up this idea of who you were. Now, if you're a Christian in the room, this is who you were. Church, uh, Paul is writing to the church. So it, he's getting them to understand this is who you were. Remind yourself that this is who you were. Now, if you're a, a non-believer in this room, I've got to be honest with you that this, this applies to you still, that you are still dead in your sins. So please understand that there is a distinction. There's a contrast between the believer and the non-believer if you're hearing this. So it, it explains our dire situation and the fact that we are enemies of God. As believers, we were enemies of God. You see the distinction. So listen to these descriptive words, okay? I want you to, that I pulled right out of the text. It says you were dead. All right, dead. <laughs> Followers of the course of this world and Satan lived in the passions of your flesh by nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. So there it is, church. Indicative, right? Stephen talked about that word last week. Indicative. It gives you facts about who you were prior to coming to know Christ. It tells you you're dead. You were following Satan. You're following the ways of this world. The passions of your own flesh. A lot of us have that still, right? We, we desire the passions of our flesh. And we were children of what? Wrath. That's what, we, that's what we deserved. Tell us, it tells us a set of facts about ourselves. If you are a believer in Christ today, that once was your predicament. That's where you were. That's who you were. And it goes on. Here's the kicker, though. Listen to the next simple verse, especially the first two words. It's always my favorite two words of the text. But God. Amen. Yeah, but God. This is who you were. There was nothing that was going to get you out of the circumstances or situation of your dire situation and where you were in life. That you were dead in sin. You're going to continue to follow the course of this world. It says, but God. He steps into your life and he intervenes on your behalf. So, but God. So, I, I, I wanted to read to you this. The study Bible note here, I thought it was fantastic. It says, no hopeless fate looks any grimmer than that which awaits the forlorn company of mankind marching behind the prince of the power of air, of the air. 
to their destruction under divine wrath. Just when things for the most look desolate, Paul utters the greatest short phrase in the history of human speech, but God. So despite ourselves and that we were dead in sin, right? That's what the Bible tells us, not me making up words. That we were dead in sins, that we were haters of God, that we were his enemies. It says he was rich in mercy. That's why it says, but God being rich in mercy. Why? The text gives us the answers, right? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love in which he loved us even when we were dead in our sins. So despite that you were following the course of this world and you were dead in your sins and your trespasses, God loved you anyways. I see no merit yet, by the way, on our own accord. We're going to get to that in a minute. I like the repetition of words in Scripture. They teach us a lot. So when we keep hearing words over and over, we talk about this a lot in our, our young adults group. We keep that, it's kind of this red flag, right, of this alarm going off of we need to be paying attention. And that word dead keeps coming up. It's telling you something about yourself. And it, I love it because it doesn't say that you're almost dead, right? Or that you're on life support. It says that you're dead. That's who you were prior to Christ, prior to God's love, but God. Remember, R.C. Sproul, always loved how he put it. He said it was like this. It was, it, you know, someone drowning at the bottom of a lake and someone throws you a life vest and you reach out and you grab it. No, that is not how it is. You're dead at the bottom of the lake. Somebody pulls you out of the lake takes you to shore, and they breathe life into you. That is what the Holy Spirit has done in your life. That is what God has done in your life. That's why God gets all the credit that he deserves for this. We'll talk about Sola de Gloria next week. But that is why he deserves the glory. See, you deserve wrath. Instead, God breathes life into you. That is good news. See, God is holy first and foremost, so he requires what? Students should know this. He requires a payment, right? He requires a ransom. He requires that we be atoned for. But how and why? We continue to develop the sermon. It says, because God loved us by making us alive with Christ. Who? Christ. No thing else, no one else. No other thing under the sun but Christ. It's him alone. The anointed one. That's what that word means. So when it's talking about Christ, it's relating back to Jesus. It's saying the anointed one is the one who ends up making us alive. That's why I can say with 100% confidence that salvation is in Christ alone. Solus Christus. My Latin is not the greatest, so just bear with me through that if I mispronunciate something. See, we try to find salvation in all other things. In John 10, this was brought up this weekend as well, but Jesus is teaching that he is the good shepherd. In verse 9, he calls himself the gate that says that whoever enters through me will be saved. So let me ask you this question. Who or what is your gate? Who or what is your gate? What do you think is bringing about salvation in your life? Bringing about the access to salvation? Because Jesus here says that he is the only one that salvation can come through. That he is the gatekeeper. That he is the actual gate. And that he opens the gate for his sheep. That only him and him alone is the gate. I don't see him giving any uh, flexibility in that statement of there being any other way other than outside of himself to be your salvation and him alone. <clears throat> uh, 
So I ask you that question because do you tend to believe that you yourself holds the gate for your salvation? It's kind of garbage we're taught today that we kind of hold the gate for ourselves. We're the makers of our own fate. That, you know, we just have to find our inner self. We'll be good. And if we can't do that, let's, let's take the next step. Let's, let's continue to dive deeper into ourselves until we, we unleash ourselves. Because we are our own salvation. How's that working for people? Look at our culture today. Or is it the applying some type of self-ideology where you can have the right ambitions, right? That's what I've just been talking about. The right motivations. Make the right choice pertaining to the areas of your life. That is your greatest salvation from yourself lies in those things. That's what we tell ourselves. Can I tell you today, this is the greatest worldview of our day? It is. And it's oftentimes we tend to fuse it together with other things like religions and such. But at the end of the day, it ends up being about ourself. We think that we can ultimately work ourselves or we can ultimately figure this life out. We can ultimately do better and that we can be the gate. Jesus says he's the gate. Acts 4.12 says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men which we must be saved. Again, the exclusivity of Christ we find throughout all of the pages of Scripture, but these especially. John 3.18, Jesus speaking of himself to Nicodemus says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. What is the criteria? Faith in Him. Belief, belief in Him. John 14, 6 and 7. Very familiar verse, right? One of the I am verses. Jesus is claiming His deity here, by the way, by using the I am statement. Listen to Him. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is a hard pill to swallow for much of the world and for many Christians today. And I make no apologies for it, but Jesus Christ is it. He is the only way. He's the only answer to our solution. Or he's the only solution to our... (laughs) Sorry. So, I hope you think through these verses and you know them you know them well because people are arguing today that it's no it's Jesus and this it's impossible to know the father unless we understand Christ is the only way Christus solus Christ alone not Christ plus something or minus something but Christ alone in in Luther's day it was Christ plus the sacraments and plus the church and plus the indulgences. As a priest himself, as Luther began to get a hold of the word, this is where it started for him. That's why we started with it. That's why we start every Sunday with it. As he began to get a hold of the word and study the Psalms and Galatians and Romans, you have to understand that even in the Roman Catholic Church, the word wasn't just handy. Definitely the mass amounts of people did not have I would say none. They didn't have any availability to Scripture. Even the priests themselves didn't. So what they would often do would read commentaries of what people thought of the Scriptures. So guess what the power of those commentaries was? What the thought of those commentaries was that it wasn't focused on Christ. It was focused on the church, tradition, indulgences, all these things that the Catholic Church had brought forward. But it stirred up questions in his heart, as the word should, and he just could not shove that to the side. And even people before him, whether it was Tyndall or whether it was John Huss or Wycliffe in England, people before him that, that came as forerunners, when they read the word, when they truly got a hold of it, it began to teach them something different. And it was in Christ alone. He recognized the authority of Scripture and it alone pointed out that Christ and his atoning work was sufficient to save. To this day, many churches still teach that it is Jesus plus. I'm not picking on the Roman Catholic Church here. I'm talking about Protestants. 
It's like we have went backwards in time. And as men, we always try to make this religion in our lives to fill in the gaps where Jesus didn't, it's like he's missing something. Like Jesus wasn't enough. <clears throat> and so many churches are teaching that you got to do X, Y, and Z along with Christ. <clears throat> and nothing is further from the truth. For some reason, we are determined to bind ourselves back to our sin and act as we must fill in the gaps of our life. <clears throat> as if, like I said, Jesus' sacrifice was lacking. And I can tell you none of the apostles, none of the writers of Scripture, Christ himself did not feel like his sacrifice was lacking. It was sufficient enough. And it's sufficient enough for you today. And I can assure you that in Christ, we can rest in him alone because salvation is in Christ alone through faith alone. Sola fide. The person that salvation rests in is Jesus, but the mechanism is through faith. The way that that comes to be is through faith. This was another issue that the reformers took to heart as the church in their time taught faith was not sufficient. But there had to be works along with it. Again, Jesus plus, right? Had to add something to it. So let me tell you today, if the church ever tells you, if you ever hear from us, yes, it's good to follow Jesus, but we really need you to serve on this team. We really need you to do this and be here for Weekend 180. You will never hopefully hear that from us, one. But the driving factor for your service and your works is because you love Christ, not because you're trying to earn something. There's a difference there. To allow that to be what drives you, because there, there's a tension, <clears throat> and, and Luther felt this tension as well. Uh, in reading Galatians and Romans and, and all these different um, you know, books from Paul, when he came to James, it was head-scratching for him. He, he really struggled with that. And the reason for that is because when James is writing to the church, he's really given some practical application as well. But it begs, did, did they kind of differ on their views, did James and Paul? Because I want to read to you a little bit of text out of James because I think it's fair that you, you hear the argument of the Catholic Church and, and so many today. But then I also want to break that down so you know it's just by faith alone. I'm going to start in 18 in, in James chapter 2 for, like, for, for time. But it says, But someone will say, You have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see, faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That seems to contradict what I'm saying, doesn't it? James is making this kind of explicit statement here. And it provides a reasonable argument from the standpoint of, of Luther's detractors. And even myself, who's up here teaching faith alone. And anyone who says that salvation is not through faith alone. So, But I could appreciate this view. I understand if you're just looking at James alone, where you would come up with that. But that's why we feel it's important, right? Scripture interprets Scripture. We look at the entirety of the text. We don't look at just one set. And that was the argument that the, the Roman Catholic Church at the time was making was that, well, here's what James says, and that's what we're going to go by. Many other passages provide us our answer. Just look back at, if you can go back to Ephesians 2, 5, 
I'm going to start right there in the middle. It says, By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through what? Faith. I don't see righteousness there. Matter of fact, if you go on, it says, And this is not of your own doing. But it is a gift of God. So how have we been saved then? Through faith. And not even a faith that originates from within, but one that is given to us as a gift. We can't even take credit for our own faith. And the reason that the text says that, that you can't take faith uh, credit for it, is so that you can't boast about it. It says that it is a gift from God himself. That's what verse 8 says. And then verse 9 gives a reason for this. So that you can't boast. You can't beat on your own chest and say, look at what I've done. No. Everything originates from God and ends with God. It's to his glory. That is why faith alone, because we, if we add ourselves to this as if we have done something, then we tend to try and take partial credit. As Jonathan Edwards once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. I'm going to come back to the, the James thing here in a minute, so don't think I forgot about that. But as the Reformation really began to spread throughout Europe in the 16th century, the Roman Catholic Church slammed the, slammed the gavel down on salvation or justification by faith alone. Listen to this from the Council of Trent that went from 1545 to 1563. It took them 18 years to nail down justification, transubstantiation, some other things. I'm not going to read this whole thing to you, I promise. But I want you to hear this. Um, <clears throat> so the Council of Trent directly refuted sola fide, by faith alone. The idea that we can be justified by faith alone. Indeed, in its reflection on James 2, which I told you it used, the Council says their faith cooperates with good works and increases our justification. And this proves that justification is not by faith alone. They list off several other things, but I want to get to the last point that they make. It says, those who believe they are justified by faith alone flatter themselves. I think it works the other way around based on what I just read. They flatter themselves for perseverance is necessary. And no one can be sure he or she is among the predestined. You, hear that? You, you can't even be sure in the hope of Christ. Jesus himself is the one that told us that he is our hope, that he is our rest, that we can find this joy in him to the point where we don't have to keep working. Because if it was true of what they were saying, then we never know. It's really Jesus plus the scales of our life. And we better hope that we're, we're balancing that out and we have a lot of good behavior and that Jesus is sufficient enough to save. Because there's really no hope. You're not sure if you're going to walk into heaven, into purgatory, or into hell. And it's true of the day. A lot of times we, we've taught ourselves that do, are, are we sure we know of our salvation? Do we know if Christ alone is sufficient? I know of many Protestant churches who teach that, that, that you're uncertain. And my goal for you today is to believe in Christ, but believe in him alone. Rest in him for the joy of your salvation. And then out of love, let that be the overflow of the works of your heart. <clears throat> Galatians 2.16 says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus so also we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works. Romans 5.1, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. That is in complete contradiction to what I just read. So that you know that you can have peace with God 
through Christ and him alone. <clears throat> Jesus in John 5 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes them, believes him who sent me has eternal life. There's a certainty about that. There's assurance. And the ch- church, the reason I want to bring this up today is because I, f- I feel like there's this burden that weighs on us throughout the week as we, we think that we're not good enough. We're not sufficient enough. You're not. Christ is. Christ is. It, it is the reason in Matthew, the, in the verse or chapter 11, he tells us to rest in him and to cast all our burdens upon him. He is our rest. Scripture determines what we believe and the consistency of Scripture is that justification is through faith alone. So here we go. So what about works? Does Paul and James disagree? Do they contradict? Can we trust this? Yeah, we can. Could you go to Romans 4, 1 through 3? You don't have to go there. I'm just saying if you do, you can write that down, go there later. We see that Abraham is justified by faith alone. That's what Paul writes. So James is writing over here where I just read out of. Well, he did something though. And that's true. Abraham did do something. He believed God. And then he did take Isaac up to the mount to sacrifice him. But he believed God would provide something for him. Because he knew God's covenantal promise was that through Abraham and his seed, that there would be one to come that would save all people. So as Abraham took Isaac up to the mount to be sacrificed, he believed that God was going to provide a sacrifice for that. Even as his hand drew back, even in his last seconds, he still believed that God's covenantal promise. And he acted as in the way God had asked him to act. It is in no different that Jesus says that belief has something that kind of ties to it. It's just an idea that when we follow Christ, we pick up our cross. So it's just not this intellectual belief, but it's this idea and this understanding that I'm repenting of my sin, I'm turning, and I'm following Christ. And whatever that means for my life, I'm going to be obedient to the call of Christ, to the works of Christ. And the point that James is trying to make here in his text is that the church obviously had to become a place of intellectual knowledge. They knew of the cross. They knew of Christ. They professed belief in him. That's why James goes so far as even the demons say they, or they believe. So you can say you believe all day, but it's another thing to be obedient in your, in your belief, in your faith. That Christ is sufficient. And what James is helping the church to understand is that genuine faith produces genuine good works. They go together. It's hand in hand. Not that the good work saves you somehow with your faith, but they, they produce, one produces the other. So it goes back to this idea. So faith, which is not of ourselves but a gift from God remember our Ephesians passage right so it's not given to us without a change of desires and works placed before us so if you go to Ephesians to verse 10 there where I finished reading for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them so we're saved by Christ alone we're saved through faith alone so what we'll go out and do the works of God that he has prepared before us not that those works save us see that they come after the fact of salvation they do in verse 10 there John Owen once said this Puritan writer we are justified by faith alone not by faith that is alone thought that was a powerful statement so we've determined the who and the what of our salvation, but the question begs the why, right? Why, why does God do any of this? Like, why does he care so much for us? You see, salvation is in Christ alone. It's through faith alone, but it's by grace alone. 
It's one of the hardest things in the world to get past that we have no merit of our own to offer to a holy God. I'm talking about since the beginning of time, people have attempted to offer something back to God of themselves, of their own accord, of their own merit, and knowing that our, even our, our righteous deeds on, a, on our best days, that they're like filthy rags. That God has, um, when he looks at them, that there, there's no benefit to ourselves whatsoever. Uh, we often think this way, that God looks down the halls of time somehow and he sees that people like me and you, and he says, yep, he's a good person. He's willing to believe. It doesn't work like that. Go back and read the first three verses that I just read. What God looks down the halls of time and sees is a bunch of sinners who are wretched and lost, seeking not him, but seeking the ways of this world. Romans 3.10 tells us that, that we're not looking for God. But he comes looking for us. And on that merit, we think that we deserve something from God, that he owes us something. When the truth is, as verse 3 says, we deserve nothing but the wrath of God. Yet instead of this, verse 5 tells us that it is by grace we are saved. And verse 8, by grace that you have been saved through faith. Grace. That word, that small word there we sing about a lot. And we talk about a lot. And we'll say we say grace around the table. And sometimes we, we don't have a clear, good understanding of what grace is. It's so much more than what we give it. <clears throat> but what makes God give us faith as a gift? What makes him choose to do that? What is his grace? It is his unmerited favor despite who we are. That's my simplest way of putting it for you. I'll get all theological about it. That's, that's just the simplest way I can tell you. What is his grace? It is his unmerited favor despite who we are and what we deserve, truly. This is why Paul starts off the passage reminding us who we are, right? And, and that we truly deserve. But then he explains unmerited favor in verses 4 through 7. I'm going to read it again. Because I want you to, this to come across clear. So here's God's unmerited grace. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, or you, as a believer, even when we were dead in our sins and our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ by grace, so by God's unmerited favor, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages... Listen to this. He might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. It gives you that substance of understanding what is God's grace. <clears throat> Here's some words that we look at. I look back at who we were before when we was looking, okay, we're dead. We're following the ways of this world and all that. Listen to these words. So <clears throat> God is rich in mercy. He has great love for us. He shows kindness towards us by measurable riches of his grace. Totally different from what I read earlier, right? Things that we're doing, we don't deserve any of that. But God gives it to us by his grace. By God's unmerited favor. He provides the grace because he loves us and desires to make us alive in Christ. That's his desire. So from the beginning, and that's why we read Ephesians 1 before, but from 2, verse 1 through 10, it tells us the story, really, of God's work in our life. If you're a believer here today, how you came from death into life and how that worked out and why it works out. You deserve no credit of your own. It is through God alone. Luther wrote this, Grace is given freely to the undeserving and utterly unworthy and is not attained by any of the efforts, endeavors, or works, small or great, of even the best of most upright men who seek and follow after righteousness with flaming zeal. It is not something that you can earn. It is not something given to you on that accord. It doesn't matter 
how many times you come to church or uh, how often, you know, you sit here, listen to a good message or how often you help the homeless man on the street. Those are good works. Those are good things you need to be doing. But you need to understand that it is not by your own merit, but it's by the very grace of God. So what, right? I want to ask you a few questions just so you can ponder this through the week and think on it as we finish here today. Do you understand that God, despite who you've been, has abounding grace? Do you understand that? Like, there's nothing outside of yourself that you can do or you have done that can take away from that. Do you understand that? That God is desiring you. Like, he, he loves you. And despite who you've been, uh, he has abounding grace. Do you trust that salvation comes through faith alone? I ask you this because I want to make the statement. Stop working and rest in him if that's the case. Stop trying to add to your salvation by your righteous works. By thinking that there's something that you can give God that works along synergistically with Jesus somehow that one day when you approach God's throne, you're going to be able to say, yeah, I've got Jesus and I've got all these things here. Because I can tell you, Christ is enough. His blood is enough. It covers all. And all these things over here are wasteful. And the final thing is, do you really believe that Christ is enough? Do you you think that? You may say that, but does it flesh itself out in your life where you know that Christ alone is enough? Or are you trying to turn to other things? Maybe there are books for the benefit of helping you do something better, of being a better you. And I tell you that the word of God tells you all those things. It's sufficient for all those things. If you don't, today is the day of salvation. The Bible tells us to take upon the merited gift of faith and trust in following Christ today. I'll make this final statement. If we desire, I hear this a lot from people that I want to see a movement, right? We use that word a lot. I want to see a reformation. I want to, I want to see our culture change. Then why wouldn't we return back to these core beliefs then? Why do we continue to add, you know, we think programs or we think uh, all these extra ministries or uh, we think, um, you know, whatever it may be that we tend to pile up and we think that those things are going to be um, what brings the youth of today back to the church. Can I tell you this? Nobody in Europe, it was the dark ages for a reason, folks. And when they lit the fire of this book right here in the Bible, it changed things. I'm inclined to getting back to this and and what this teaches us about who Christ is, who God is, and and the mechanism of his salvation in Christ alone. So my hope is is if you're of that thought process, man, I wish it was like the old times, or I wish we could go back to that time of reformation and, and see a movement in our society, you can. And it begins here, though. It begins in Christ and the work that he's done. So remember this, many men have given their lives to these truths. We talked about Tyndall last week, how he was literally strangled and burned to death at the stake in England. Many others gave their life too. What are you willing to give? What are you willing to sacrifice? It's true of the youth too, the relationships. Is it your ambitions and career what does it look like for you it looks like something different for all of us so what, what does that look like when it comes to proclaiming this truth if you really want to see a reformation and a change and a, and a movement in our time again what's that going to cost you in other words I'll finish with this let's live in a way that gives all glory to God 
So in, in every aspect of our life, when you walk out of this building today, when you live tomorrow in your jobs, in your schools, in your, you know, whether you're a stay-at-home parent, whatever it is, you go to the grocery store, live for the glory of God, trusting in these fundamental truths that I've preached today and knowing that it is by that and those things alone that we can really change our world. This is why China, this is why places um, like that and Iraq and Iran, the gospel is just, it's like stoking the embers of fire. But our American Christianity has taken over and, and, and become such a way that we don't believe that, that this is sufficient enough anymore. This is good enough. So I, I pray today's message and, and next week's and, and what we're on discussing here today and, and last week as well and the weeks before that with Joey, all these foundational things are, are coming to a head of understanding that all things are tying back to this is for the glory of God. So let's pray. Father, thank you so much, <clears throat> Lord, for your constant reminder and forgive us for our constant neglect as we look at your words, Lord, and we see here, God, that we, we have nothing to offer. But you have been so good and so kind to us that Christ died for us. That him alone, Lord, there is no other name under heaven which we can be saved. So why not turn to that one? Lord, so I plead with that, with, with the hearts of people in the room who who may be wrestling with this truth, this dealing with the salvation and the issue of it, do they find these things to be true in their life? And for the believer to return and repent and move back towards that direction, we have this tendency to try to put effort in everything we do, Lord, and thinking that we're going to please you but in reality, we please you only in Christ and through him. I pray that that would be the way of our church and the people here. And that we would recognize it through Christ alone and faith alone and by grace alone. That, Lord, you have given us a calling. Um, whether it's in our backyards or in our neighborhoods or in Honduras, wherever it may be that we put on the biblical worldview of the lens of scripture. And Lord, we use these as our main arguing points. That this is how we fight the world, we debate the world. And Lord, as we come to the tables today, that we be reminded of the truth we just preached, that God, we celebrate you. We celebrate your your sacrifice, your atonement on the cross for our sins. And Lord, that we will deal with our sin before we do that. Lord, we love you much. We should be so much more grateful. Like turn our hearts always back to you, Lord. May we think about this throughout the week and preach the gospel to ourselves. In your name I pray. Amen.